and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 17 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I am Nick Garisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Today we're breaking down Matthew Berry's Draft Day Manifesto. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What are talking about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. We let him off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot coach with him. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep trickling the trickle the ball down the field, boy. I saw it, son. I saw it. Hello? You play to win the game. Fantasy football is stupid. We play a game where players like Tariq Cohen, Naeem Hines, and Golden Tate are somehow seen as more valuable than Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, and Matt Stafford, some of the NFL's best and most important players in reality. Most of you who are taking the time to listen to this know that the reason that Tariq Cohen, Naheem Hines and Golden Tate are typically drafted before Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers and Matt Stafford in fantasy drafts is because of supply and demand. As fantasy experts throughout the industry will explain, drafting the best quarterbacks, Lamar Jackson, Pat Mahomes, in round one is a rookie move. They'll tell you that it's smarter strategy to spend early picks on more valuable and scarcer positions like running back or wide receiver because the advantage of having an elite quarterback is not nearly as important as having quality depth at running back and wide receiver. And because there are plenty of quarterbacks who will put up quality numbers, experts advise you to wait before addressing the position. Now stop what you're doing right now and take a moment to think about what you just heard. And if you're a seasoned fantasy football veteran, this line of thinking probably seems totally normal to you. But should it, though? Imagine telling an NFL GM that you would rather focus on acquiring your second and third running back instead of Patrick Mahomes in round four. Think about the perplexed look on their faces when you tell them that you can find quality quarterbacks later in the draft or even in free agency, that there's a surplus of good quarterbacks in the league, so the position doesn't really matter that much. You'd be laughed out of the room. Listen, there comes a time when you have to put things in perspective. And that perspective comes quickly for anyone who has ever tried to explain fantasy football strategy to somebody who has never played before. Try explaining to an NFL fan who has never played fantasy football before that Tariq Cohen, Naheem Hines, and Golden Tate are more valuable assets than Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and Matt Stafford. Their most likely response is to think that the game of fantasy football is stupid and makes zero sense. And in this respect, they would be absolutely right. Mainstream fantasy football roster constructions are currently lagging behind the times. In real football, the game has become more dependent on strong quarterback play. And running backs have become devalued to role players who split the workload and are dependent on the system. But in fantasy football, this has had the exact opposite effect. The mass pass-heavy hysteria has created so many good statistical quarterbacks that they are actually now less valuable in fantasy football, even though they've never been more valuable in reality. Quarterback is without a doubt the most important position in all of sports, but yet it's right above kicker in terms of fantasy football value. This is clearly 
a messed up and backward system that we've all just learned to blindly accept when the truth is our system is broken. In fantasy football, we have backup quarterbacks who throw for over 4,000 yards and 25 touchdowns riding on our benches all year long or even sitting in free agency because we can only start one quarterback. So we're usually hoping our second or third running back who plays sometimes plays fewer than 50% of the snaps on his own team, second string players for their own team, but nevertheless, they're players that we have to start. We hope that they get, I don't know, 10 touches a game. It's idiotic nowadays. Quarterbacks are way more entertaining to watch than third wide receivers or a team's second string running back. Why do we have all these good quarterbacks just sit and rot on our benches and in free agency all year? Fantasy football is about statistics. So it's curious why in a league with so few bell cow running backs, where 62% of the plays are pass plays and over 80% of the total yardage of the NFL comes through the air, and at least 20 quarterbacks putting out very respectable passing stats each year, that this game nevertheless continues to require you to start two or three running backs, but only one quarterback. What are we doing here? Simply put, based on the way the NFL is played today, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, come on. The average draft positions in expert fantasy football leagues have dudes like Russell Gage, Darrington Evans, Joshua Kelly, Denzel Mims, and Chase Claypool are going ahead of actual top 20 real-life quarterbacks like Cam Newton, Jared Goff, Jimmy Garoppolo, Kirk Cousins. I'm not even kidding. And it's simply because your sixth running back on your fantasy roster is clearly more important than getting your backup quarterback or sometimes even your starting quarterback. And it sounds so ridiculous to say out loud. And it's time to stop sitting back and accepting this as normal. While the NFL has evolved, fantasy football has devolved. I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going back to the dinosaur ages here. At some point, you have to stop answering, this is the way it's always been done. And you have to look in the mirror and you have to start asking, what's wrong with the game? How can we make it better? The answer is Superflex. A super flex is when you add a flex position to your fantasy football starting lineup, but you can play any offensive position in there, including a second quarterback. And there are several excellent reasons to convert your league to a super flex league. First, because the super flex allows you much more lineup flexibility and creativity. If you've already selected Tom Brady and you're in round six and you hate all of the running backs and receivers on the board, you can now take Drew Brees simply because he's the best player available. Second, because now for your second flex spot, your super flex position, you can choose between a quarterback, wide receiver, running back, or tight end, this can make lineup decisions much more challenging. Or it can even help people out of a bind when they have a really tough bye week situation or injuries to their skill positions. This makes lineup decisions and coaching calls more difficult and more crucial. Third, Superflex can make the draft more interesting and unpredictable. This is one of my favorite aspects of Superflex leagues. League members aren't constrained in the draft to oblige by one archaic strategy that everybody robotically follows, where you take your running backs and receivers first, and then you know you wait on quarterback and tight end. Roster flexibility is key here. And fourth, quarterbacks are much more fun to watch and evaluate than most running backs and wide receivers. Everybody knows quarterbacks, and they focus on them because of their real value in the real game. So there's a certain increase in the level of entertainment you get out of expanding the league to possibly start two quarterbacks while your opponent has two starting quarterbacks against you. In other words, it's more fun to watch Joe Burrow or Phillip Rivers 
and score meaningful points in the second flex option than watch guys like Philip Lindsay, a second-string running back on his own team, or Nikhil Harry, like maybe the Patriots' third wide receiver. I mean, think about it for a second. What are really the drawbacks of Superflex lineups? Why don't, why don't we use them? Why isn't it mainstream? I can only come up with two criticisms. First, I've heard that everybody would want to use the second quarterback in the Superflex spot because quarterbacks score the most points, and this makes them theoretically too valuable. And my response to that is, good Quarterbacks are, in fact, the most valuable players in the NFL. And it's the most important position in all sports. So, yeah, them being more valuable in fantasy, yeah, that's kind of the point. And second, the main criticism I hear of Superflex Leagues is that there aren't enough starting quarterbacks in the NFL. In other words, if if everyone in a 12-team league drafts three quarterbacks, let's say one starter, one possible Superflex start, and one backup, then it adds to 36 quarterbacks in a 12-team league, yet there are only 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL. The math doesn't seem to add up. Well, first of all, if you're in a 10-team league, well, then you just really have no excuse not to have Superflex. But let's say you're in a 12-team league, even a 14-team league. You can curtail this legitimate concern by placing a roster limit of three quarterbacks per team. That way, one team doesn't go in and just hoard all the quarterbacks. But if everybody has a roster limit of three healthy quarterback, of three quarterbacks, then you help alleviate this situation. And my other counter to this kind of math problem that you've given is considering this math, that there are 32 starting quarterbacks, yet only 10 or 12 of them matter in your fantasy football league each week. And again, that is absolutely absurd, foolish, and goes against everything the NFL stands for nowadays. So now if you play in a 14 or 16 team league, yeah, you can say that's pushing it. But if you're in a 10 team league or even 12 team league, Superflex is a no-brainer. And plus, this isn't a two-quarterback league. This is a super flex league. That means that even if there were no starting quarterbacks in free agency, you still have the option of playing a running back, wide receiver, or tight end in the super flex spot. And if it means that everybody in your draft room needs to draft quarterbacks higher so that they can make sure they get two or three viable starters, then great. That makes your league better, not worse. Don't be afraid to change the status quo, especially when the change makes too much sense. Don't be stubborn and stuck in your ways. Evolve with the NFL. And fantasy football needs to catch up with the times. It's a pass-first league, and quarterbacks should be more valuable than they are in fake football. As a result of all this, Superflex leagues are becoming the way of the future. They're becoming much more widespread and more popular among expert leagues in the industry. But somehow, the mainstream websites like ESPN, Yahoo, NFL.com, CBS, they all refuse to make Superflex the default fantasy football format. And they need to be more progressive. This is the way that the fantasy football industry is rightfully trending towards. And as a commissioner in your league, you want to be ahead of the curve, not behind it. I predict that Superflex formats will be mainstream as in adopted by all the default setting big-time host websites within the next three years. And it could be next year. It should be next year. It should have been this year. I've been playing Superflex Leagues for four years now, and they're awesome. Nobody complains. Nobody ever goes back. Nobody ever wants to go back to that stupid one-quarterback format where you're drafting your, you can draft your starting quarterback you know, in round 13 alongside your kicker. That's not fun. Nothing's fun about that. And it just doesn't make sense. So if you're serious about fantasy football like I am and you want to be ahead of the curve and not slow to adapt and you want the best 
possible fantasy football experience, then I strongly recommend trying out a Superflex League this year. Not only will you never look back, in a decade you will laugh at the very thought of single quarterback leagues. Again, they just don't make sense in today's NFL. Superflex leagues are the way fantasy football should be played. They are the future of this game. So please heed my advice. Make sure your leagues are Superflex leagues this season. And that is my spiel. All right, I wanted to put that on the record because I'm very passionate, obviously, about incorporating Superflex leagues to your leagues. Almost every league I play in is a Superflex league. And when I just look at these expert mock drafts and I see Pat Mahomes and Lamar Jackson going like in round four or five, it just makes me more and more upset each time. Like, how come nobody can just take a step back and just think about how crazy that is and ask themselves, what can we do to fix this broken system? But anyway, the way to fix it is incorporating Superflex Leagues, so you better do that this season. Let me know if y'all have any questions about that. I'm happy to answer them. Uh, But that's my best pitch for Superflex Leagues. We do have a lot to get to today. I'm going to go over the fantasy news of the day before we get to the main event, which is breaking down Matthew Barry's Draft Day Manifesto. All right, we have a lot of training camp fluff pieces here today. The first one is Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray said DeAndre Hopkins, Christian Kirk, and Larry Fitzgerald could all have 1,000 receiving yards this year. Psych! That's the wrong number! Yeah, I appreciate the optimism there, Kyler, but I'm not buying this. And I don't think there's much to take away from this fluff piece, except for the fact that maybe Larry Fitzgerald will continue to have a sizable role in this offense. Kyler Murray has a lot of hype surrounding him going into year two. He'll be the third or sixth, third through sixth quarterback taken in drafts, right in the mix with Dak Prescott, Deshaun Watson, and Mr. Unlimited, Russell Wilson. His name, his name's Mr. 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 Unlimited. Yeah, you got to be unlimited. And speaking of Mr. Unlimited, the Seahawks quarterback said that the offense should be more aggressive this season and treat every quarter like the fourth quarter. Now, keep in mind that this is just his desire. He said the offense should be. He's not predicting that it will be. And he's not saying that you know he expects it to be even. He's saying that he wishes that it was. And he's shared similar sentiments before. Unfortunately, however, there's no indication that the ultra-conservative Seahawks offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer will open up the offense and let Russell Wilson cook. We've seen it in spurts, how great he can be when he runs that spread offense, when he has total command of the offense, and he's in the hurry-up. A few years ago, when Russell Wilson was first unleashed at the end of last season, that was the year that Doug Baldwin caught like 14 touchdowns, and like seven of them, or eight of them, came in like the final seven or six games or something crazy like that. But lately, the Seahawks' strategy has been to ignore Russell Wilson for the first three quarters of the game, of each game, in an effort to establish the run and then inevitably get behind on the scoreboard because that is a prehistoric philosophy. And then in the fourth quarter, when they're trailing, they realize they have one of the best players in the NFL and they finally let Russell Wilson do his thing because they're forced to. And literally, he saves the team more often than not. According to Bill Barnwell, the Seahawks won six games where they were trailing at halftime a year ago. Not only is that two more than any other team, but it's tied for the second 
highest total for any team since the 1970 merger. So yeah, Russ has the skill set to truly put up elite numbers, and we've seen it in limited samples over his fantastic career. But if we knew the Seahawks were going to throw away their conservative run-oriented philosophy and say, yeah, Russ, this is your offense, then yeah, he'd be the clear quarterback three and frankly drafted much closer to Lamar Jackson and Pat Mahomes. But hopefully, and I have to make this joke, the Seahawks Stone Age coaching staff doesn't limit Mr. Unlimited. Okay, more Seahawks news. Seahawks tight end Will Disley practiced on Wednesday, 10 months after tearing his Achilles. And Coach Pete Carroll said that he expected Disley to be ready for week one. Hey, that's awesome. I mean, that's a huge surprise. And Disley was a huge surprise. Uh, In weeks two through five last season, he went five catches, 50 yards, and two touchdowns, six catches, 62 yards, and a touch, seven catches, 57 yards, and a score, and eight catches for 81 yards. That's weeks two through two through five, and he was a touchdown scoring machine. Russ loved latching onto him in the red zone. And people were scrambling in their fantasy leagues trying to add this guy off the waiver wire, Will Disley, I mean. And he was coming off now he's coming off the Achilles injury. And I do know that I say Achilles really weirdly, but I always have, and I'm, there's no turning back now. And the Seahawks also signed Greg Olson. So it's not clear how much Greg Olson has left in the tank. He was talking about broadcasting. I think he's already signed to a broadcasting contract after this season. But he's a veteran tight end, and it will allow the Seahawks to bring in Disley more slowly than maybe they would need to. So we'll probably see a rotation here, and I don't think either tight end are on the fantasy radar, even despite Russ's affinity for them in the red zone in past seasons. So Eagles coach Doug Peterson said that wide receiver Greg Ward is in that starting mix. And Peterson was asked if Ward's performance down the stretch earned him a spot among this year's options. And the coach responded by saying, yeah, he's in that rotation. He knows the concepts and the routes. So Marcus Goodwin opted out of the 2020 season. Alshon Jeffrey may start the season on PUP, which would force him to miss the first six games. So even even if wide receiver or rookie wide receiver Jalen Rager doesn't start on opening day. We have to assume that he's going to be receiving startle snaps by like week three or four. So I see this as a battle between Greg Ward and J.J. Ortega-Whiteside for the Eagles' number three receiver duties. And until we get more news on Alshon Jeffrey's health, which is not expected to be favorable news, I think that Deshaun Jackson and Jalen Rager are the only draftable wide receivers for this team from a fantasy perspective. And I think they'd be going much higher in fantasy drafts if the Eagles didn't have two great tight ends and two great pass-catching running backs as well. But that kind of caps their upside. Uh, But anyway, ESPN's Vaughn McClure reports that the Falcons are considering limiting Todd Gurley's workload in training camp. And Vaughn points out that Gurley walked with a noticeable limp during the early phases of Falcons' acclimation period. And folks, here we go. It has begun. We're already here. In the NFC Players to Avoid episode, I rambled about how I did not trust Todd Gurley's knee and how he looks to be on the downslope of his career. I want no part of Gurley in fantasy drafts. And now we're already hearing negative health reports. So Gurley, he could surprise because he's in a nice opportunity as the starting running back in Atlanta. But guys, you can't be drafting this guy anywhere near his ADP. If you want more information on Gurley, 
Please listen to my last episode. AF, uh, sorry, NFC players to avoid. Gurley is among that number. Next bit of news: Athletics, the Athletics, Vic Tafour uh, said the Raiders receiver Nelson Aguilar will do enough in this offense to make fantasy owners of Henry Ruggs, Tyrell Williams, and Hunter Renfro upset. So Gruden supposedly likes Nelson Aguilar a lot. Join the club. I too once loved Nelson Aguilar. He burned me in fantasy football as a rookie. I was really high on him. Uh, but we've already heard offensive coordinator Greg Olson implied that Brian Edwards was going to be a starter when he said that Ruggs would be playing in the slot. Now, that was probably an overblown report. I'm not sure if that happens all the way. But eventually, Brian Edwards may be the starter, but probably not in week one. But if Nelson Aguilar is in this rotation, it's probably another little ding to Hunter Renfro. And I I like Renfro as a deep league sleeper in PPR leagues, but no matter how you want to read into the Raiders' recent receiver reports, the worry here is this. I think it's safe to assume that the Raiders will be playing in a lot of 12 personnel frequently. That's one running back and two tight ends, uh, which means two wide receivers by default. And they'll be playing at 12 personnel at probably a top 10 rate because they have Darren Waller, they have Jason Witten, they have Foster Moreau, three capable tight ends. So if Hunter Renfro isn't on the field during that time because he's strictly a slot receiver, I mean, imagine, I mean, I imagine that that formation will include Henry Ruggs and Tyrell Williams mainly, at least as the Raiders starting two wide receivers. So that means that Renfro... And it means that he can only really get on the field when the Raiders use 11 personnel or try out three or four wide receivers. Well, if Nelson Aguilar's best spot is in the slot, and they also want to put Henry Ruggs in the slot at times, and they want to move him around, it makes for a much less stable role for Hunter Renfro. And will he be getting the snaps that we saw late last season when he was also a sneaky good fantasy player down the stretch in PPR leagues? You know, I'm just not really sure anymore. So good friend of the show, Brett Beater, lifetime Raiders fan. He's fading the Raiders receivers this season, and Nelson Aguilar only complicates matters further. And it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. I still like Ruggs, but I loved him a lot more when you could get him in the 120s. Now the public has realized that that was too late, and the market correction has him about 20 spots higher than that, or drafted earlier, I should say. So speaking of the Raiders, Josh Jacobs said his goal is to try to catch at least 60 passes this season. And Jacobs only caught 20 passes last year, so this would be triple the output, and only 27 targets as a rookie. So very, very weak passing game numbers. And I think I read somewhere that he was he only ran 12 passing routes on all third downs last year, which is a sad display of usage there. And general manager Mike Mayock has already expressed optimism that Jacobs will be more involved in the passing game. But then the Raiders' actions said otherwise. They re-signed Jalen Richard, their passing down specialist. They drafted freakish running back receiver uh, hybrid Lynn Bowden. They drafted him high, and they called him a running back on draft day. And then they signed all these other wide receivers and tight ends I just spoke of. So I highly doubt Jacobs is going to catch 60 passes this year. Uh, But if he can get to 35, he had 20 last year. If he can get to 35, that's almost doubling his output. So that's an aggressive prediction, I'll admit. But that would be enough with his rushing ability to, to probably make him a nice hit. So Le'Veon Bell said that he wants to play at 210 and 220, or sorry, 210, 215 pounds this season. He said, I'm ready to show that this is the best Le'Veon Bell that's ever played in the NFL. And that he admitted that he was not close to being in top shape last year, coming off a year without playing football because of his holdout. 
So this is yet again another great Le'Veon Bell, you know, best shape of his life kind of report that we've seen. And I believe it. You know, I'm in on the fact that Bell wants a bounce back season. And I'm in on the fact that he's trained hard this offseason. And I'm even, you know, in on the fact that, you know, I still buy his talent, right? I still think he's a talented player. But I'm out on the idea that Adam Gase and the Jets offense will allow for this bounce back season. And, and I'm just out on his situation in general. So ADP is 36 overall. Uh, there are still plenty of third or fourth round picks that I would rather. I'm open around five to Le'Veon Bell because then at, at that point, it's just like running back. Okay, yeah, your volume kind of means something at that point. But where he's going, I still have to be out. So speaking Wednesday, Coach Frank Wright reiterated that Marlon Mack is a starting running back. but the Colts will ride the hot hand in the backfield. And I think we have to expect at this point that Marlon Mack will start at least two or three games for Indy, maybe three to five. But Taylor, during that time, should get about 10 touches a game initially. And eventually he'll take over as the lead back, of course, because he's just more talented. And the Colts have a much higher investment in Taylor. Uh, but, but drafting Taylor in round four is about patience. Like, Can you afford to potentially not be using your fourth-round pick for a few weeks to open the season? In PPR leagues, it's less attractive because Naheem Hines will likely lead the team in running back catches. In very competitive leagues where you don't make the playoffs very often, it's less attractive because you, I don't know if you can afford to have Taylor either sitting on your bench or not putting up good production this first couple weeks. But in leagues that you do routinely make the playoffs in, and you're just going for a strong finish because you expect to be a contender, then yeah, maybe Jonathan Taylor becomes more attractive of a target to you because he kind of fits the mold there of you, you can you can be patient, you can have somebody else fill in your flex for those first couple of weeks and you just want to finish strongly, you're going for the ship, not just to make the playoffs. So, you know, it, it, to each his own. And there might be a few teams that I draft Jonathan Taylor on, but I'm not aggressively reaching for him in any league. I'll, I'll probably have him on my board right near consensus. Um, but the uh, next bit of news, the Athletics' Matt Barrows expects number 25 overall pick wide receiver Brandon Ayuk to be the 49ers' best outside the hashes target. And he equates Ayuk to essentially taking over the Emmanuel Sanders role. So with the Debo Samuel's injury, or the Debo Samuel injury, I should say, Ayuk has a clear path to playing time. And I think he's a legit sleeper because of that. So don't forget about him in drafts. His name, Ayuk, is fun to say, uh, not fun to pronounce. I'm not even sure if that's right. But he's not getting a lot of love as the other rookie receivers who went in round one. Ayuk was also drafted in round one. The Niners traded up for this guy, and he still has a 171 ADP. And the 49ers will have to throw more this season. He's an attractive late-round flyer. So he, Matt Barrows also reports, and this is a bigger one here, that he wouldn't assume Raheem Mostert will be the 49ers' starting running back. And he believes that Kyle Shanahan might lean towards starting Tevin Coleman because Coleman is a little bigger and more physical than the others, end quote. So perhaps Coleman may begin the year as the official starter. And there's two ways of looking at this. Uh, the pro Raheem Mostert's side will read this blurb and they'll say, 
oh, well, this has already happened before. You know, Coleman kept starting games over Moser during Moser's dominant stretch run last year. You know, Coleman would start the opening, play the opening drive, and then Shanahan would ride Mostert because he was, and Mostert was a top six running back down the stretch, despite Kevin Coleman's quote-unquote starting. So, you know, this is nothing new. We've seen this. Who cares? But the the other side of the coin, the anti-Mostert experts are saying, well, despite how amazing Mostert was in the final 10 games last year, Kyle Shanahan refuses to name him as the starter. I mean, what is with this guy? They just locked up Mostert to... Or uh, they just extended his contract uh, after his holdout. I mean, they showed some faith to do that, but there's, he's still probably not going to be the starter, according to this beat writer. I mean, what does it take? I, I find that a little concerning. So that's the other side of the coin. So I think Moser's holdout and his lack of total clarity has caused Moser's ADP to slide to 65 overall. And he was up in round four at the beginning of the summer. So that's a reasonable cost now. I actually think both are reasonable costs. I mean, this is, I like the idea of even drafting both. I mean, the only problem with that strategy is that Jarek McKinnon could come out of the woodwork and play receiving downs and prove to be the hot handsome game. So the 49ers backfield, it's a valuable one. It's an awesome running scheme, great offensive line. But you're getting boomer bust with this. Like, no matter who you invest in, if you go with the 49ers running back, you're getting boomer bust, and not just for the year. Like it could be week to week. It could be a roller coaster ride. So next bit of news: Patriots running back James White will have a heavy role and could be in for a monster year, according to the Athletics. Jeff Howell and Howell cites Cam Newton's usage of Christian McCaffrey in 2018 when McCaffrey had 107 catches. Um, we learned this year that it was not just Cam Newton peppering McCaffrey. However, it was pretty much any quarterback who played for. Carolina, because McCaffrey again had, I think, over 115 catches this year. But this is something that I thought about after finishing recording last episode, where I kind of bashed the Patriots running back situation and advised ignoring it. I even said that my favorite running back was out of the bunch is, is Lamar Miller. Not that I thought he was going to be the best. I said specifically that um, if I had to end up with one, it would be Miller because his cost is free, whereas James White is going in, in round eight. But for all the uncertainty surrounding Sony Michelle, Lamar Miller, Damian Harris, and even Rex Burkhead, there is one thing that will remain constant, and that is James White being the receiving down back for the New England Patriots. So I don't want to come across as, in the last episode, when I said, like, there's no way I'm considering him, I don't want to come across like that. I, I think he's the most valuable Patriots back that James White is. But I do think his ADP is pretty lofty, 78th overall. ADP for James White. I think that's a little too rich for my blood. So let's move on to NBC Sports, Chicago's J.J. Stankovitz expects Mitchell Trubisky to remain the Bears' week one starter over Nick Foles. And he did go on to say that Trubisky will be on a very, very short leech. And yeah, I mean, this affects Allen Robinson, who's basically never played with a good quarterback in his entire career. The Bears love Trubisky and wanted to give him another shot. Michael Lombardi even reported, and he's very plugged in, he even reported the reason that the Bears didn't sign Cam Newton is because everybody would have gravitated towards Newton because he's such a presence, his leadership is so great, and Newton would have easily been the guy and it would have ruined Trubisky's confidence. So they brought somebody not as imposing, Nick Foles, who just knows Matt Nagy's offense, but was terrible in Jacksonville last season. So now it's a true quarterback competition. And let's face it, that was an absolutely terrible way of making a decision. I mean, GM Ryan Pace falling victim to the classic sunk cost fallacy uh, and, you know, a bunch of other mistakes that he's made 
and not wanting better competition, quarterback competition for the most important position on the team for a Bears team that otherwise is pretty good other than their crappy quarterback situation. So it's honestly impressive that Ryan Pace has kept his job, you know, to be blunt. But but yeah, I'm agreeing with the report. I do actually think Trubisky will start and inevitably he will not play well and he will get benched. And then Nick Foles will likely come in and he probably won't play well either. Or maybe he will in spurts, but it won't last. And the Bears will likely be looking for quarterbacks in the 2021 draft, possibly with a new GM. I mean, that is all just my prediction. If it goes doesn't go that way, you can rub it in my face. But that's just kind of how I see this playing out. And I don't think we have any reason to assume otherwise, right? What What are the counter arguments that, oh, Trubisky is going to come out of nowhere and just this is going to be a career year? I don't, you know, he just really embraced the competition with Foles. If that was true, if he really embraced competition, they would have not minded bringing Cam Newton in, but they were scared that Trubisky would get his feelings hurt. So, no, that that narrative can't be the case. So, anyway, I'll move on. Not a great quarterback situation for the Bears. Speaking earlier last week, Sammy Watkins said he understood his numbers uh, might not be what he wants them to be in 2020. And he says, quote, yeah, of course, as a wide receiver, I want more balls. And I would love to have more balls. That's what she said. <laughs> Michael. Michael. Michael, please. But that's not my focus. My focus is getting the win and going out there and having fun. Having fun, Sammy Watkins said. That's his focus. What is this, Pelican Park? This is, you know, not peewee football here. This is ominous for Sammy Watkins' fantasy football outlook. I think that he's reading... Uh, between the tea leaves there and hearing what the coaches are saying in, in training camp and in game planning. And it probably means that McCall Hardman may have a bigger role this year, even if even if Sammy Watkins, quote-unquote, is the starter. So Watkins had one of the best games of the year in Week 1 last year when he blew up for three touchdowns after Tyreek Hill exited early against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then Sammy Watkins did nothing for the rest of the year. He showed up in the postseason, which is nice. Uh, he had a quality postseason run. But he's just not on my fantasy radars. ADP is 150 overall. He probably scores six touchdowns next year, but you'll just never know when they're coming. Um, I think last bit of news here. Speaking Thursday, Titans tight end coach Todd Downing praised Johnu Smith's skill set. He makes it fun. Uh, Downing gushed about Johnu Smith. When you have a guy on your offense that can do so many things, you can be creative and find ways to get him touches. That's something we like to hear. It is. It is. Reminiscent of regular coach speak, and this is just the tight ends coach. Of course, he's going to say that about his tight end. But Smith is a yak monster that's yards after catch, and I want to like Smith a lot more. I am concerned about the volume that he receives in this offense with it being led by Derrick Henry. His average draft position is tight end 19, uh, so he's kind of being drafted as a backup or not drafted at all in shallow leagues. I have him a little higher than tight end 19 on my rankings because of his skill set, and I think the Titans are going to have to throw more than last season. But, yeah, I mean, he's going to have his fair share of two-catch 19-yard games there. Um, Travis Kelsey and George Kittle both signed massive extensions through 2025, so good news for them. And the NFL announced that the COVID-19 positive test rate in the NFL's first two weeks of training camp is below 1%. That is amazing news. And again, this was a lot of news. I wasn't able to do a podcast for the last two or three days. I did have to go to Woodworth, Louisiana, which is where we just moved from. My wife got a uh, an amazing job promotion that sent us to Covington, Louisiana. And Woodworth, small town, about three hours away, we had a house there. So we just sold that. We just closed on our house. So good news for us. 
Not necessarily financially because we didn't make any money on it, but it was good news to just not keep paying two mortgages, right? So anyway, uh, that is the up close and personal version of why you did not receive more training camp blurb news than normal. Uh, but let's move on to the main event today, and that is breaking down Matthew Barry's draft day manifesto. So in my first ever podcast episode, I opened up with breaking down Matthew Barry's top 100 facts article, and his 100 facts article is a must-read every year, usually when people start their draft prep. You know, that's one of the first articles they look at. Such a famous article in fantasy circles, top 100 facts is, and, and even the casual drafters. But Matthew Barry's draft day manifesto is right up there as well. So today, I'm going to scan through it and explain what I learned, important advice, key takeaways, etc. And, and Barry's theme in this year's Draft Day Manifesto is seven habits of successful drafters. And he starts off with habit number one, they spend a lot of time repairing. Uh, not repairing, preparing. So learning the rules, scoring, settings, obviously important, not groundbreaking info there. If you're listening to this podcast or this, if you're listening to this podcast, you don't really need somebody to tell you that whether you start two wide receivers or three wide receivers in your fantasy leagues is important. Uh, of course, it affects draft day decisions, the rules and settings. You should always look over them. And if for no other reason, you should always look over your league rules and settings and scoring. If for no other reason than just getting an edge on your opponent, but mainly just to see if any rules are messed up, right? Like if any rules you just disagree with. A lot of people forget after you know potential controversies uh, or things that they thought of during the year and they didn't bring up. A lot of people forget that over the offseason. So if you don't like that, you know, you don't use FAB money for free agency and you're on waivers, like, or you don't like that, um, or you don't like that your league has a seven running back limit for your roster, or you don't like other things, it's good to look at your, because you will forget all that. And once your draft has happened, your commissioner is not going to be making these rule changes. At least a good commissioner wouldn't. So it's important to look at all that before the draft so you can bring up potential rule changes. So yeah, you do want strategy um, you know, advantages over your opponent, but I like to look at the rules and make sure that the commissioner hasn't changed anything or tweaked anything, and to make sure I just didn't forget about anything that I found troubling or to come up with something maybe I didn't know that I could foresee being a problem. Uh, and I like to bring that up before the draft because after the draft is not the time to be bringing up rule changes because it affects teams that have already drafted. So, yeah, keep that all in mind, but we're going to skip over that. Part C is important of habit number one. Barry says, quote, and I'm not going to read you this entire article. Obviously, it's a very lengthy article, but I am going to read the best bits and portions that I like that I found most valuable, at least in my opinion, uh, for your fantasy draft. So Barry says, quote, the average draft position is largely driven by the default rankings on whichever site you play. So the ADP ranks and likely the way your league goes on ESPN sometimes differ significantly from ADPs in other places where people play fantasy because the default rankings are so different from those places. For example, uh, as of this writing, Daniel Jones is going to the quarterback 15 on ESPN. He's ranked there. Um, but our, one of our biggest competitors, I think he's talking about Yahoo, he's being ranked on as quarterback 25. And that's a significant difference and one that if you're a Jones believer like I am, you can exploit. So that's what Barry says there. And I do find this very important. He is correct. And I've even talked about this at length on different times throughout this podcast. I also find it a little hypocritical to kind of open the article uh, with talking about how rankings matter so much 
on different default sites. Uh, but it's a little hypocritical because you know three I think I think three or four days before this recording, Matthew Barry was tweeting that about how Clyde's Edwards Hewer should obviously be picked in the first round of every draft. I think it was based on a uh, Lewis Reddick tweet that had that he said Edwards Hilaire should go one overall, and Barry was replying and retweeting saying that yeah, Edwards Hilaire definitely should be a first round pick in every single draft, like no questions asked. And yet ESPN's very rankings they had the Fresh Prince at 16th overall. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel Air. So naturally, I tweeted at Matthew Barry and asked him why that was. And obviously, I got no response. I'm small potatoes. But if you're going to sit there and brag about ESPN rankings, at least have them updated. And for what it's worth, they just did update this right before recording. And it was about actually, I think it was five days later that he said that. And now, Clyde edwards Lair is ninth overall. So I won't say that my tweet is responsible for that. But, you know, nevertheless, I'll move on. Matthew Barry is absolutely correct about his initial statement about how rankings on whatever site you're drafting on matter big time. And it's what everybody in the draft room is looking at, and it really drives ADP. So what I like to do, particularly in leagues where you know your draft pick, like days or weeks in advance, I'll write down all my numbered picks by round. That's the first thing I'll do. So let's say I learn that I have picked two in a 12-team league. In my draft prep, or when I'm preparing strategy for that league specifically, I'll immediately start by writing down all my picks. So Pick two, round one, okay? You know, in round two, I'll have pick 23 overall. In round three, I'll have pick 26. Round four, pick 47. Round five, pick 50. Round six, I'll have uh, pick 71. Round seven, I'll pick 74. Round eight, I'll pick 95, and so on. I do this all the way until the draft's end. And then I look at the rankings and the ADP of the website that I'm drafting on. So if it's ESPN and I'm playing in an ESPN league, I'll look at their draft room rankings, and I'll look at ESPN's ADP and... I'll view the players who are going around each pick that I just spelled out. And more importantly, which players are going behind each pick that I have. Because you always want to play for a worst case scenario. You can't assume that players who, if I have pick 71 in round 6, I'm not going to just start targeting for that round players who are ranked 58 or players who are even ranked 68. That doesn't make any sense. You have to, when you're preparing for a draft, you want to assume the worst case. You want to have players on your list who are after pick 71. Yeah, you can write down all the players who are picked before. You always want to be expecting or hoping for the best, expecting the worst. You want to have targets that are going after pick 71 or after each pick in each round that you have projected. That way you can land your worst case scenarios there. So like, let's say I have pick two, I end up with, you know, maybe Barkley or Zeke, whatever. And then I pick 23. So I'm looking, I know I have pick 23. I'm looking at the ESPN rankings and ADP, um, which are two different things, by the way, of course. But Joe Mixon on rankings going 18th overall, Travis Kelsey 20th, George Kittle 28th, Josh Jacobs 22nd. And there's a slew of receivers that, you know, I could like Kenny Galladay, DJ Moore, Allen Robinson, Adam Thielen, Juju Smith-Schuster, Amari Cooper, all ranked 22nd through 27th. So those are all the players basically between 18th and 27th. So those are likely the players, assuming I just love one of them or some of them, I'm likely going to land. So I write them right down next to pick 23. And, and notice in this draft, I'm right near the turn. I also have pick 26 in round three. So I'll probably land two of those guys. So then fast forward to round four, pick 47. You know, you're scrolling down. I'm looking around. T.Y. Uh, T. Hilton's ranked 47th exactly. Maybe he's an option. Zach Ertz, 44th. Maybe he'll follow me. I love A.J. Green. Uh, his ADP is 58th. So maybe I can snag him at 47th. And then after the turn, pick 50. 
you know, maybe I love Mark Andrews as much as I do love Zach Ertz. So, you know, I'll wait for him there. And Mark Andrews ranked 61st on ESPN. I have picked 50. I don't pick again. I'm looking at my picks. I don't pick again until pick 71 in round six. So this layout helps me realize that if I want Mark Andrews, I needed to target him in round five at 50 because he's not likely to make it to me at pick 71 in round six. So that was a lot there, but that's, you know, I know I was talking really fast there, but that's pretty much how it all works. So anyway, this isn't to say just only draft players uh, in that little range near your ADP, of course. Uh, I think value is an overrated concept, and we'll get to that actually later in this article. But it is to say you just want to get a feel for who's going around your pick. It doesn't help you to, if you know you have pick 23 and pick 2 and 23, it doesn't help you to look at the 8th and 7th ranked players on ESPN because they're not going to get there. They're not going to do it. So why am I going to have them on my board? You know, it helps to have a thought about them in case a crazy fall does happen. But when you're preparing for your draft, you want it to be more realistic of preparation there. So so anyway, I just jot down all the players that I like that are going projected around my specific picks around each round. Uh, only the players I like, of course, not the players I don't like. And it's that's step one when I'm preparing for a specific draft when I know my draft pick. So Barry goes on to say, and of course, if you're playing in a league with family and friends or coworkers and all that, uh, then you have an idea of tendencies as well. Who reaches for rookies? Who goes quarterback early, et cetera, et cetera? You want to get a feel for your league. So that's the gist of it. And this is generally good advice, but how do I apply it? No, not really by, you know, kind of noting who likes to go quarterback early. I mean, yeah, maybe specifically in draft. Um, I'll think about that stuff, but that's a, a minor factor. What I like to do, with, with I, the way I like to apply this, I like to get down and dirty with it, and I like to go much deeper. So if I'm playing in a league that I've been playing in for a long time, who are generally the same people uh, over year and year in drafting with them, what I'll do is I'll look up last year's draft and using the same example, let's say I have picked two of 12 and let's say I really want, I don't know, Austin Eckler to fall to my second round pick at 23 overall. Like I love Austin Eckler this year and I have to have him, uh, but, but I got pick 23 and I don't know, he's ranked 17th overall in the ESPN ranking, so I don't know if I have a chance at him. So in my preparation, what I'll do is, you know, I'll note that he's ranked running back 12 in the rankings, okay? So I pull up last year's draft for this league, and I count how many running backs were taken before pick 23. So let's say the answer is 10 running backs. Well, then, even though Austin Eckler is ranked 17th overall, if only 10 running backs went before pick 23 last year, and then I look at the year before and only nine running backs went the year before before pick 23, and then I looked at the year before and maybe only 10 running backs went before the year, uh, I mean, before the pick 23, then I know in the last three years of a sample size, only uh, eight to 10 running backs are taken before 23. Could it happen to where this is a very RB-heavy year? Maybe, yes, so. Maybe 12 running backs are taken before my pick, and Austin Eckler is one of them. But at least now I know, even though Austin Eckler is RB17, I have a better idea that Austin Eckler may actually fall to me at pick 23, despite his ranking, because my league has not picked 12 running backs each year before pick 23. I look at the draft's history to determine that. And I actually do this with all of my picks. So I told you I jot all my picks down, 23, 47, 50, whatever they are, and and then I look at past drafts in this league, how many running backs, how many receivers, how many tight ends, how many quarterbacks are gone before picks 23, before pick 26, before 47, before 50 each year. I make a chart about this. I have a huge Excel chart about this for all my leagues. So this helps me determine, yeah, I'm a huge nerd, but this helps me determine, it doesn't take as long as you think. It helps me determine um, where runs typically start, like quarterback, 
in tight end runs, for example, you know, I have one league where it's a super flex league, obviously, where I, you know, I'm, I'm on brand here, but I kid you not, you know, honest to God truth, 14 quarterbacks within, within a 19 pick span in like round seven through eight last year. And it was one of the craziest positional runs I've ever seen in my life, probably the craziest. And I had picked right at the beginning of round seven of the turn. So like 23 picks before my next pick, you know, was, we're going to go. And I knew based on past history of this league, the league average over the last three years that we've done this super flex, I expected seven to eight quarterbacks to go before my next pick as I had it charted. And I looked at, you know, I wanted Carson Wentz in round seven. And I was like, you know, am I comfortable with the round, the quarterbacks, you know, seven or eight quarterbacks away from Carson Wentz? And I wasn't. So I took Carson Wentz at the beginning of the run. And I, and I did so because I was able to see historically that this, in this league, players tend to draft their second quarterback in the Superflex League in rounds seven through eight. Now, I didn't obviously foresee that 14 quarterbacks were going to go in the most insane run ever, but I was able to look at past history and say, you know, when I'm on the clock and say, or even before I got on the clock and say, hey, if, if going into the draft, if I'm going to take Carson Wentz, I'm going to need to do it now. I'm going to need to do it in round seven. I cannot rate, wait until 23 other picks before my next uh, round eight pick. So, um, so yeah, that, that stuff helps you. That stuff helps you prepare. So when is the, let's see, other, other ways that this helps? When's the first defense you usually picked? I mean, it's, it sounds like small potatoes, but let's say I want defense number eight really badly and, and they're ranked eighth on ESPN. What round does the average, what round do defenses start going in my leagues? You know, usually like around 12 or round 12 or something like that. But what round do usually people take their the eighth defense? What round does that usually go off the board? And that's usually closer to like round 15, 16. So I know that I can wait. Usually it would be a surprise if I didn't, like if defense eight was taken around 12 or 13. So anyway, um, there's some deep strategy advice there. So next thing, Matthew Berry tells us to mock draft all the time in practice. I actually like doing this strategy because I've gotten really good at what I call target drafting. I actually like doing this even better than mock drafts. I think what I the, the whole spiel I ran, I just went on about draft prep is actually even more important than mocks because you can play out scenarios based on your board, based on your uh, you writing down all your picks and writing all the players you like and trying to you know go through the thought process through your head like okay if this guy's not available what I'm going to do here if this position's not available what I'm going to do here and what rounds do I need to uh, draft bef- certain players before certain runs etc I actually like doing that more than mocks but anyway uh, curiously B- Matthew Barry ends up going on this rant about how he likes to do to prepare he likes to do a bunch of best ball drafts and he talks about how great they are and I agree I mean best ball is amazing this is a format where you take the team that you drafted and automatically slot your best scores each week for quarterback, running back, running back, receiver, receiver, tight end, et cetera, into your starting lineup. So basically the computer gives you the optimal score you could have attained each week. So it doesn't matter if you if their starters are on your bench. So you don't have to set your lineups. There's no in-season management in some of these leagues where there's no waivers or even trades. This is all the draft. And the draft... Uh, like you just draft and the computer does the rest. And they're usually deeper leagues because of, you know, with injuries and bye weeks and everything, you need more uh, players. You're not just drafting 15 players. You're drafting, I don't know, 25 players. And, but these leagues can be, are usually for like small amounts of money, like $5 best ball draft. And then people do like hundreds of them, like kind of like penny slots of fantasy football. 
And you can just check your scores whenever you feel like it because, again, the, the computer just does it all. So best ball is amazing in the states that allow you to gamble on that kind of stuff. And Barry agrees and he, enough, he agrees enough to go out of his way to talk about how best ball uh, is a great way of preparing for drafts. But, I mean, that just kind of makes me sit there and wonder, here's a thought, Matthew Barry. Why don't y'all offer best ball formats? I'm no genius or anything, but why doesn't ESPN just offer best ball formats? Why don't y'all have best ball, Matthew Barry? What is up with that? How does ESPN not offer best ball leagues? It's absolutely ridiculous. Yahoo offers it. The worldwide leader. Most popular fantasy website in the world by far doesn't offer best ball. What a damn shame that is. Okay, habit number two, understanding positional depth. Uh, Great quarterbacks. Barry talks about how they are awesome. You'll enjoy watching them every week, uh, but there's simple math to it. There are 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL, and in a 10-team standard ESPN league, only 10 must be selected. Meanwhile, in a 10-team or 12-team league where you only start one quarterback, that's likely 15 or so quarterbacks that will be drafted. That leaves another 17 or so on the waiver wire for you to pick up in a bye week or someone gets hurt or underperforms. And side note, if you think this sounds exactly like my Superflex rant earlier that I opened the episode with, you're exactly right. Barry's basically just giving this amazing argument for being in Superflex leagues, doesn't it? Like he's sitting there saying that, oh, well, in our standard 10-team ESPN league that we, you know, our pride enjoyed 10-team ESPN leagues, uh, well, there's 17 quarterbacks on the waiver wire each week. But I just opened this paragraph saying that quarterbacks are awesome and we'll enjoy we enjoy watching them every week, but only 10 must be selected. I mean, wake up. You're literally giving the Superflex argument and you don't even realize it. Or maybe you do. And I'll get more to that in a second. Because pay attention. This is not the first time that Matthew Berry describes the benefits of Superflex leagues in this article. He actually already mentioned in the first section of Habit 1, I didn't even say, when he talks about his team in the Scott Fishbowl, which is a Superflex league, and he mentions that. He also mentions again later in this section, if I played in the Superflex League, I would draft Lamar Jackson and Pat Mahomes much higher. And I think it's just so odd that he's mentioned Superflex Leagues twice already without it being forced, right? Like Matthew Barry, could he be testing the waters for ESPN to make Superflex Leagues the default format in ESPN? I mean, they already consider their default 10 teams, which makes it even more optimal and easier to incorporate Superflex. I don't know. I think it's suspicious. And obviously, it's, it's a change I would definitely invite. But Barry says that the difference between quarterback 2, Deshaun Watson, last year, and quarterback 11, Kyler Murray, was 3.2 points per game. And, you know, it's not nothing compared to the difference between RB2, Dalvin Cook, and RB26, Dalvin Singletary. That was 8.6 points a game. So, yeah, Barry's basically saying that running backs are much more important than quarterbacks. Not exactly groundbreaking info, but I do find stats like that to be very interesting. So I'm glad he included it. Uh, and then I also find this very interesting. These are the fir- the top 10 quarterbacks last season on a points-per-game basis for weeks 9 through 16. Number one, Lamar Jackson. Two, Ryan Tannehill. Three, Drew Brees. Four, Pat Mahomes. Um, five, Josh Allen. Six, Jameis Winston. Seven, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Eight, Dak Prescott. Nine, Kyler Murray. Ten, Jimmy Garoppolo. Twelve, actually, was Sam Darnold, which a lot of people don't realize how strongly he finished last year. But, yeah, I mean, top quarterbacks... Uh, for most points, 9 through 16 on points per game basis. Ryan Tannehill, number 2. Jameis Winston, number 6. Josh Allen, number 5. Ryan Fitzpatrick, number 7. Jimmy Garoppolo, 10. Sam Darnold, 12. So, yeah, he's basically uh, saying here that quarterbacks are very replaceable. 
uh, here. So, you know, you can kind of leave them on your waiver wires. You don't have to draft a second quarterback uh, in your traditional one quarterback leagues. And you should be spending your early round picks drafting running backs rather than quarterbacks. I, I don't think it's, I don't think Barry's trying to, uh, you know, provide this amazing expert advice to seasoned players. But you got to remember ESPN, Matthew Barry is preaching to millions, millions, millions of people. And a lot of these people are casual players. So people who would have the instinct to draft Pat Mahomes, like number one overall, Lamar Jackson, one overall, he's trying to give advice to them, telling them not to. Although again, I think those uh, those newbies have a point when they say quarterbacks should be going higher, but I've already said that spiel. So uh, Barry also notes that the quarterback rushing floor is valuable. As I've been preaching and, and piggybacking on what experts are saying this year, Barry sums it up nicely with this line. He says, last season, nine of the top 10 quarterbacks had at least 200 rushing yards, and five of them had at least 300 rushing yards. And five of the top 10 quarterbacks were also not in the top 10 the previous season. So quarterback, pretty replaceable position. But you know if you get a rushing floor, that can help that upside there. Again, the first, if you look at the ESPN rankings, I think the first, or pretty much any rankings, the first quarterback who is not necessarily mobile, who doesn't have that rushing floor, is Matt Ryan. He's all the way at like quarterback eight on most sites. So anyway, moves on to running back. Here he gives uh, some numbers here. And uh, he says that from RB10 to RB15, oh no, sorry, from RB5 to RB10, there's a 19.9% drop in points. And from RB10 to RB15, there's a 12.9% drop. And as compared to wide receivers, where wide receiver 5 to 10 is a, only a 13% drop, and wide receiver 10 through 15 is only a, 10 through 15, yeah, is only a 7.7% drop. So lower than the numbers for running backs. And I love this stat right here. I love this line. He said, there are 26 receivers who gave you at least 70% of what Chris Godwin produced last year in terms of fantasy points. There were only 11 running backs who produced what Aaron Jones produced, like the number two running back, uh, number two running back. So yeah. And then he says eight of the top 10 running backs in terms of points per game average at least three catches a game. And this is when he preaches, hey, this is, by the way, ESPN uh, settings are full point PPR. He's basically saying, so nine of the top 10 uh, running backs saw at least 30% of their fantasy points come from receiving, while 18 of the top 20 running backs average at least two receptions per game. The outliers being, you know, crazy freaks of nature. Probably, I know one of them is probably Derrick Henry, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, again, this is, you know, there's more text in the article of this, but I'm pulling the best uh, info here. And that is valuable info. Not that you obviously want running back catching passes, but it's just good stats there showing how much more valuable running backs are than wide receivers. So uh, 19 wide receivers who averaged at least 15 points per game last year, 34 wide receivers averaged at least 12.5 points per game last year, and 55 receivers who averaged at least 10 points per game. This is the deepest position in fantasy. Uh, so that's kind of the theme of that. And then for tight end, I didn't really get much insight there. Uh, that was at least valuable to me. He says, as he always says, he wants to be either one of the first people drafting a tight end like the Kittles or Kelsey's or the last people drafting tight ends. So, you know, that's fine. Uh, that's a commonly used expert strategy. Uh, so habit number three, he says, minimize the risk and give yourself the best odds to win on a weekly basis. And since he, he talks about this every single year, he does a similar section every year. And yeah, he says exactly, since we don't know what's going to happen, all we can do is try to predict what's most likely to happen. Travis Kelsey has four straight seasons of at least 80 receptions and 1,000 yards, and he's returning with Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes as quarterback. What's most likely to happen? Russell Wilson is the only quarterback 
to throw for 30 touchdowns in each of his past seasons, and he's done it in three straight, what's most likely to happen. Aaron Jones and Derrick Henry each had 16 rushing touchdowns last season. In the past 13 years, no running back in the NFL has repeated a 16-touchdown season since LT and Larry Johnson in 2005 and six, respectively. What's most likely to happen there? Touchdown regression. And Josh Allen rushed for nine touchdowns last season. Since 1950, there have been only 10 other instances where quarterbacks rushed for at least nine touchdowns in a season. All 10 of them saw their rushing touchdown total drop at least four in the next season with an average decline of 7.1 rushing touchdowns. So do you tell me what's most likely to happen? So great stuff there. It's just good to kind of put players' outlier seasons, good or bad, in perspective. So habit number four, uh, uh, great fantasy football drafters. They recognize this fantasy football season will be vastly different from any other by a significant margin. So um, he said that he wants to save space wherever he can in a 10 or 12 Team Standard League, where he only starts one quarterback, he wants to only draft one quarterback. That was his example he used. Um, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this COVID stuff. You know, Barry talks about, he advises uh, expanding benches, IR spots, being cautious with rookies and players on new teams, putting an emphasis on continuity, creating a league cutoff rule. Um, how is the champ declared if the season's cut short? We've discussed all this at length in previous episodes already. So I will just, I'm not going to go for, through the pros and cons of this. I'm going to tell you at the time that we discussed all this, I mentioned what I was probably going to going to do in this scenario. Uh, but I wanted to hear from my league members what they thought. You know, I didn't want to be a Roger Goodell like commissioner and just make the rules and say, here, you guys follow them. You know, I am reign supreme. Uh, so, so anyway, I spit out these rules that are proposals to my league, and I want to say what we're actually doing in case you want to adopt this format. Uh, obviously, with the main changes that I, we're drafting in the late 20s of August into September, uh, into September this year, that is the first change. And I hate drafting later, so you know you don't want to get me started on that. I like early drafts, so that's the first change. But we really have no choice this year. And then I'm adding an IR spot. Now my leagues already have two IR spots, so this year we're going to be having three IR spots. And if you're thinking to yourself like three IR three IR spots, that's a lot. You know, I strongly recommend going to three IR. IR spots. I've heard a lot of people saying, oh, you know, like three may be too much, like maybe you're overrating COVID. I mentioned earlier that only 1% of the player or less than 1% have COVID. So maybe it just goes better than we think. But what's the worst case scenario there? Oh, you add another IR spot? Like who cares? Like that's, that's very, you know, not, it's better to over prioritize uh, that in case things do go wrong rather than, you know, because the worst case scenario is it goes better than we think and you don't have to use those IR spots or people use them for people who are actually hurt. So there's really no harm in adding multiple IR spots. So I'm doing three instead of my usual two. And I want to actually contrast this on increasing bench spots because there is harm in increasing the bench spot, right? Like you can you can really decrease the value of free agency, right? Like I have heard a lot of people decrease, uh, increasing bench spots and talking about doing so, like Barry advising to do so. I am not. I am not doing that. Uh, that's because the starting lineups in my leagues, every league's different, but the starting lineups in my leagues are already huge. I do one quarterback, r- running back, running back, receiver, receiver, tight end, flex, flex. So double flex and then super flex where you can start another quarterback. So basically three flexes, kicker, defense, defensive player, Actually, sorry, two defensive players in any position. So that's that's 13 starters, I think, in, in six bench spots I do. And then we have three IR spots. So that is a really deep league. 
And I think that you can add bench spots um, and go d- if if you add bench spots and go deeper than that. At least in my leagues, where you have that big of a starting lineup, then you're going to make the free agency pool so shallow that just nobody can swim in it. You're really going to thin out free agency. But if you have leagues with like one flex, well, first I advise you to go to add at least another flex spot and then a super flex, of course. But if you have leagues where it's like 10 people, 12 people, I, you know, yeah, sure, add another bench spot. Like what's, it's no big deal. Um, but if people are already complaining that free agency sucks and there's nobody in free agency, I, I you know, I don't think it's a big deal. Just add an IR spot and keep free, uh, keep your bench spots the same. So that's what I'm doing. Last, uh, I'm keeping, uh, and this is an important one, I'm keeping buy-ins uh, the same. Uh, I'm not raising them or anything. I'm, I've asked all my league mates if they want to keep it the same. They're all like, yeah, we can do it. But nobody has to pay their buy-in until season's end, right? Like whenever that is. Because in terms of cutoff dates, if the season ends before the playoffs are set, then no money's distributed, okay? So everyone just gets their money back. Although in this case, I'm just not making them pay because I trust these guys. I'm just not making them pay because of the hard times, because of COVID. You know, people may have lost their jobs. You want to be sensitive to that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm not making them pay their buy-in until after the season ends, especially because if it gets canceled anyway, I'm going to be giving their money back because if the season's canceled before the playoffs are set, we're giving the money back. Now, if the playoffs are set, or even if they're mathematically determined, like all four or five teams or however many teams you have making playoffs are mathematically determined, the playoffs are set, well, then you know that everybody else is eliminated, and then we're going to be distributing that money to the playoff teams, right? Like, that makes sense. Everybody else is eliminated. They can't get their money back. So um, once the playoffs start, they will be distributed to the playoff teams. Now, here's the thing. What happens if the uh, league gets canceled or postponed, like big major postponed, like the NBA, well then, you know, if the playoffs have started but not finished, well then all the playoff teams are going to be splitting the pot evenly, okay, no matter what. Well, I shouldn't say no matter what. Like if the championship's already been determined, then yeah, then maybe we'll split second and first evenly. It depends on what your payout structure. But basically, if the if the season is cut off right after the playoffs start and there's no clear elimination yet, then the uh, playoff teams will divide the money evenly. And if the playoffs aren't set, okay, and the season is canceled like in week, I don't know, five, then no champion is declared. But I will declare, and nobody gets money, of course, but I will declare a champion if it's after week 10. So starting week 10, that's our cutoff. So starting week 10, we can declare a champion. And we're going to declare the champion. It's going to be the team with the most points, not record. I thought this was going to be more controversial than it was in my leagues, but I pitched it and everybody was just like, yeah, that's cool. Points is fine. Points is a better indicator. So, yeah, uh, you know, week 10, it is arbitrary. It's it's the first double-digit number, but it's not rocket science. I just came up with week 10 because it's, you know, a nice majority of the season. It's got a nice ring to it. And, you know, I just thought it was fair. After 10 weeks, somebody was the most points. Yeah, we'll declare that person champion. But, however, they're not getting their money. You know, nobody's getting payout until the playoffs start. So if it's canceled in week 11 or whatever, yeah, we'll declare you the champion if you have the most points, but you're not getting paid. Just, you know, that that's our rules. You can follow them if you want, but just make sure that you get an agreement before the season for your own leagues. Uh, let's move on. Habit number five, uh, they understand it's a weekly game. And he, he goes on, it, this is nice. I, I like number five here, having number five. It talks about how you wish every t- player on your team were like a Derrick Henry who just kind of explodes and is a great hit all year. But you need guys like Latavius Murray, who last season was like a top two running back, you know, in weeks like eight and nine when Kamara was out. And too often people just kind of look at the big picture 
and they have recency bias, and they think about players performing the recent pass, and they don't look at the situ- the week-to-week situation, okay? And too often people want players with high floors, and this is a week-to-week game, so you should be targeting players with kind of high ceilings. So the players he used, as example, this is all strategy that I've revealed to you already and that I agree with, and it's philosophy that I support, but he used some great examples. He talked about how... Boston Scott, we've already seen Boston Scott be a top seven running back or or can be a top seven running back when Miles, if Miles Sanders goes down. You know, with the impressive stretch he had down the stretch last year, Boston Scott out of nowhere. And we've already seen what Latavius Murray can do when Alvin Kamara goes down. Like he was a, an amazing running back in those two weeks. Uh, and we've, but they have similar ADPs to a player like Naheem Hines. So, like, why are we spending picks? on Naheem Hines when the best case there is that Naheem Hines turns into like a poor man's James White and he's just a check down target and there's no like if Jonathan Taylor gets hurt then Marlon Mack's just going to be a lot better if Marlon Mack gets hurt Jonathan Taylor's just going to be a lot better like Hines is just set in this low you know this this low ceiling role so why are we spending picks on uh, Naeem Hines? Why not just take picks who can be weak winners, even if they don't do anything for the weeks that they're not, like Boston Scott or like um, like Latavius Murray? So, and then he also gives another great example of like why draft Philip Lindsay going RB thirty eight on ESPN when J.K. Dobbins is RB forty and J.K. Dobbins could be you know potential league winner uh, if something were to happen to Mark Ingram, uh, whereas Philip Lindsay, if something happens to Melvin Gordon, we've seen he's just RB twenty eight last year. So, yeah, this is obviously something I agree with. I think I've used even examples like very, very similar to this in this podcast. You want high week-to-week ceilings in the later in the latter half of your draft, not high floors. I subscribe to this team-building philosophy as well uh, because if you miss on these later picks, who cares? You just cut them anyway and they get replaced. So let's move on to habit six. Uh, good drafters are flexible and they trust themselves above all others. Uh, Barry starts uh, mentioning Superflex leagues here again. He starts talking about uh, you know what he's doing in a certain superflex league that he's in, or what he did in a superflex league that he was in. And in my opinion, I'll just stop this right here. My opinion is this is going to be the, one of the most read articles for ESPN, like actually for all of fantasy football. Okay, and in my opinion, I could be wrong, but my pulse on this is that Matthew Barry is planting the seed for ESPN to make the switch to Superflex being its default fantasy format next season. That is what I believe. And that is why I opened the show with Superflex today. And I would obviously applaud that and say it's about damn time. So we'll see what happens there. But maybe after they do that, they'll shift to points per first down instead of uh, instead of points per reception. That'll be my next um, crusade. But one can only hope. Anyway, important content in this section. Matthew Barry says, uh, once the season starts, uh, look at the top 10 wide receivers in ADP last season. Wide receivers traditionally one of the most consistent positions, but once it starts, everything's just thrown out the window. Like, nobody had Cooper Cup as a top 10 wide receiver last year. Nobody had Allen Robinson. Nobody had, uh, I, I don't think at least, nobody had Kenny Galladay. So, er, and nobody had Chris Godwin as a top 10 receiver too. Like, I was higher on Chris Godwin than anyone I knew, and I think he was wide receiver 12 for me. And also, nobody had Devontae Parker and, and Jarvis Landry, from my knowledge at least, and they both finished as top 12 options. So all these guys, you know, like six of the top 12 options who finished as top 12 were not drafted anywhere near the top 10, uh, says Barry. So I'm a big 
uh, believer, especially as you get further into the draft, you should go get your guys. And that was actually Barry saying, it sounded like me, actually. Uh, you probably thought that was me saying that, uh, just saying my own opinion. But no, that's actually Barry. And he says, don't sweat rankings or what some people think are good values or bad. None of that matters. It will all change. I mean, hell yeah, Matthew Barry. That's what I'm freaking talking about right there. That's the kind of stuff that's great content. You're exactly right. And you probably think that this was me talking. If you've been listening to every episode of this podcast, you probably literally thought that was me. No, but that was Matthew Barry saying that. And this is great advice. And I went on a long rant about this exact topic in much greater detail in episode 13. Rankings are so inaccurate and they drive ADP. So the concept of getting value, quote unquote, in fantasy football is, is extremely overrated. And at the end of the day, your picks are usually hits or misses, and the hits are way more important than the misses because the misses are all cut and replaced anyway. So the best experts are the ones that you that lead you to finding the big hits. And that's the brief summary of that rant. But Barry is exactly correct. Don't sweat rankings. They're so inaccurate. No set of rankings when you go look back on the back on at the end of the season are accurate. Even your favorite expert, the one you always read, all their stuff you always trust, uh, even if it's me, they're not good. They're horrible. You can be better than the other experts, but you still at the end of the day will be inaccurate. And that's just the fact of the matter. We're like weathermen, I guess. Yeah, don't overrate your site's rankings or any site's rankings. And you know, if you have a guy who I mean, this is the perfect example. I mean, if you're in round three. And you're at pick two, like I just said, and you know there's going to be 23 picks before it gets back next to you, okay? You know that your next pick all the way isn't until like 47 or something like that, okay? Don't be afraid to draft somebody who's ranked in the 40s because if you don't, if if he's your guy and you have him ranked up near 23 and he's your best overall player on the board and you don't know if you can get him on the way back, then it's not a reach. That's my definition of reach, by the way. In case y'all are wondering, my definition definition of reach is I do not think players are a reach unless you are confident you could get them on with your next pick. Okay, that's my definition of reach. It's that simple. So if I'm at pick 23 and I love a player who's going 44th overall, and I just don't know if he's going to make it back to 47th. Maybe I'm like 50-50 that he makes back to 47th, and he's my best overall player. I take him. I don't care about value. Everyone will say, oh, well, you had a chance to take somebody else, and then you could have you could have potentially got him with your next pick. That's dumb. No, it's not dumb because the guy I had ranked higher, the guy, the best player available on my board was that guy. So why am I going to pass up pass up on him for another player that I don't like as much just for perceived value? And then if he does get picked, the guy I did want, and then I'm like, well, great. I'm stuck with this second player, you know, that I didn't really want. No, you need to draft the players that you want. The only excuse for not drafting a player that you want there is that you are pretty confident that he's going to make it back to you with your next pick. So maybe... You know, you shouldn't be reaching for somebody who's ranked, you know, 59th at 23. Then, yeah, he was probably going to make it back to you at pick 47. But you get my point. Reach, you know, reaching is is just an overrated, you know, people make fun of you in your draft or whatever. But, you know, if you weren't confident they're going to make it back to your next pick, no matter when your next pick is, it's not a reach. Okay. Um, all right. So habit seven, last habit. Uh, they understand that the draft is just the first step to success, and you don't have to win your league during the draft. In fact, it's very likely 
that you're just acquiring the building blocks for your team. This is correct as well. I agree with Matthew Barry here again. Four of your, he, I love this section because he goes on to um, give uh, league winners last year. And I like looking at the percentages, who, which players were really on teams that won championships last year. And I love when he does it. Uh, four of the six players rostered by ESPN playoff teams last year were not drafted on average in the first nine rounds. This is a great stat here. I mean, uh, four of the six players most rostered on ESPN playoff teams not drafted before round nine last year. Lamar Jackson, Patriots defense, Austin Eckler, and Darren Waller. And what does that show? Besides the fact that I had Lamar Jackson, my number one quarterback after round 10 in my draft guide last year, besides the fact that I had Patriots number one defense in my draft guide last year, and besides the fact that Darren Waller, my number one sleeper, tied in last year in last year's draft guide, I love to see it. But besides the fact that it talks about how great I am, no, I'm just, I'm just messing around. I obviously, I did not have Austin Eckler higher than even higher than consensus so that sucks i miss out on him but yeah my draft board and strategy by the way august 25th when i'll be publishing that on my website fantasylawguy.com so yeah stay tuned for that but what do i really take out of this what i really take out of this is that you know the four of the six most valuable players in the espn playoff teams last year i'm assuming christian mccaffrey was one of the two players not mentioned but lamar jackson patriots defense austin eckler darren waller these guys are not like round one, two, three picks. These guys are picked way late. I mean, these guys are picked after round nine on average. But anyway, Barry goes on to say that, in fact, six of the seven players most rostered by ESPN champions last season were not drafted in the leagues. The exception was Christian McCaffrey. So there you go. And in Brashad Perryman, 0.3% drafted, was on 27.2% of uh percent of championship rosters. AJ Brown, 5.7% drafted. Tyler Higby, 0.2% drafted last year. Devontae Parker, 9.8% drafted. Ryan Tannehill, 0.3% drafted. Raheem Mostert, 0.1% drafted. And these guys were all like around 20% of championship rosters. So great stuff there about the importance of in-season management. You can have the best draft in the world, but you need these guys. You need these guys to be to be carrying your teams late, win all the injuries strike, win the bye week strike, win when uh, players just underperform. You need to be adding players that uh, sifting through the waiver wire and hoping that you get these waiver wire lottery tickets. And if you get one or two of these guys, it's a massive help for your team, uh, whether you draft poorly or you draft well. So yeah, league winners are found every year on the waiver wire. But at the end of the day, even the best drafts, Will you're going to end up cutting like at least half your players probably, and you need to be replacing them with valuable contributors, and that really goes a long way with helping you win your fantasy football league. That will conclude today's episode. It's a longer episode than normal, and I'm losing my voice. Next episode, we will have a great show about the most competitive league in the fantasy football industry, in my opinion, that's the annual Apex League with 12 incredible experts. We're going to be breaking that down. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, do me a favor, hit subscribe and give this uh, podcast a five-star rating or a positive review. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. See ya. See ya.